add my welcome to you all today. Happy and humbled that you would join us on this Lord's Day and give your attention to God's Word and uh, to worship. I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the New Testament, and we are um, giving our attention to chapter 6. Last week we, we surveyed quite a large section, the first 59 verses, and um, <clears throat> the, the bread of life teaching of Jesus in this portion of Scripture is just nothing short of a, it's like a spectacular crown in this treasure trove of this remarkable chapter. It's weighty, it's solid, it's golden, and the Apostle John clearly means for us to feel its weightiness. He clearly means for us to be affected by its value, pricelessness. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Food this world knows not of. Come down to give life to the world, eternal life, imperishable life. But having looked at this crown and having admired it kind of as a whole, having felt its glory in and of itself, don't you feel a bit of a, an eagerness, a desire to, to examine and get your hands on and you know, experience the wonder of what else is in this treasure trove? There's more stuff in there. And, uh, and so we're ready to kind of move on. We're ready to um, move forward in order to see what else is here. And as we're about to move on, our, our eyes catch sight of, of a glimmering jewel. And we could almost miss it. And just as, about, as we're about to move on, something else in these verses arrests our attention. There's a particular jewel in this crown it catches the light and it sparkles and when we see it we take a deep breath and you gasp for a moment with the recognition that we almost passed by without noticing it we we almost missed out on benefiting from this particular jewel with its own unique and its own distinct beauty. And so, before we move on to the end of John chapter 6 and the treasures before us and the rest of this gospel, we're going to pause and we're going to look, not, not just simply consider the beauty of this crown as a whole, but now we're going to look specifically at one of just two of the precious and dazzling stones that are embedded in this crown, which, which together, all together, make this crown such a stunningly glorious treasure. And so today, and God willing, next week, my aim is to draw your attention to two amazing jewels contained in the crown of John chapter 6. There's way more. We're just going to look at these two. And today we're going to give attention to the jewel of the truth of God's sovereign initiative in our salvation. The truth of God's sovereign initiative in our salvation. And next week, we're going to focus on the jewel of the truth of God's promise and power to securely keep all those who have come to Him through Christ Jesus. It, it, these, these, these truths are just simply too glorious to pass over quickly. These truths put God's, um, His beauty on display in a manner that is, uh, it's just uniquely brilliant and uniquely massive. They're just massive. And when we see these truths, and, and I believe that when we experience these truths, then they become precious to us. And they not only are precious to us, but they become transformative to us. They just cast a tint on 
everything else. So, the first jewel to which I want to call your attention is set specifically in John chapter 6, verse 44. And in order to fully appreciate, again, the brilliance of it, in order to see it in its brightness, I want to read, I'm going to begin reading in verse 35 and uh, read on through verse 47. So please give your, your attention to God's precious, precious word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Here's verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, truly. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then let's just go back again. Verse 44. Listen to this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Could we say that verse together? Can we just say it out loud? Join me. This is John 6, 44. Here we go. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Let's say it again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. One more time and see if we can do it without looking. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. So of all the remarkable and life-giving truth that you communicate, O Lord, in this In this remarkable chapter, here stands out a jewel that we could pass by, we could disregard it, we could miss it, we could miss out on the spectacular beauty 
and weightiness and glory and majesty in this verse all by itself. I ask, O Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would open our eyes. It is of such weight and such value that uh, I tremble to handle it and, and could not do justice with it. And so we're, we're turning to you, Lord, with total dependence on your grace, the work of your spirit, the power of your, your presence to assert yourself and reveal yourself to us and accomplish, O oh God, what you would intend for this truth, the truth of, of specifically John 6.44. Work among us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Well, I have a, <clears throat> a twofold purpose this morning. Uh, purpose number one is to unpack this gospel truth contained in this verse. And, and here's the gospel truth contained in John 6.44. It, if I could summarize it, I would say it is that our salvation depends ultimately entirely on God the Father's gracious initiative. Our salvation depends ultimately and entirely on God the Father's gracious initiative. That's what we're going to seek to unpack. And then my second aim and purpose is to show you that how, how believing that truth, entrusting ourselves to that truth, functions. It produces appropriately produces humility and gratitude and a joyful security and peace in God's people. So, so we, we, one of our values that uh, we hold um, as a church and with our family of churches, we value gospel-centered doctrine and preaching. We value gospel-centered doctrine and preaching because we are convinced that gospel doctrine, gospel truth trusted and believed, works. It gets something done in us, and it produces the fruit of a gospel culture. And so in this case, the doctrine that we believe uh, is that our salvation, our right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it depends ultimately and entirely on God the Father's gracious, loving initiative toward us. He makes the first move. And believing that doctrine and entrusting ourselves to that doctrine, that truth, that our salvation depends entirely on God's, the Father's gracious initiative toward us, it produces something. It produces the fruit of humility and gratitude. It makes for humble people, thankful people, joyfully secure, peaceful people. And the beauty and the attractiveness of a spiritual community that is characterized by humility versus pride. Pride in its twin sister, shame. A spiritual community characterized by gratitude versus a community characterized by grumbling and complaining. A spiritual community characterized by joyful security versus worry and walking on eggshells. It, that's what we pray for. That's what we pray for. So this, this verse, this doctrine is essential. It's crucial. So let's begin by unpacking this truth that our salvation, our right relationship with God through Jesus Christ depends ultimately entirely on God the Father's gracious initiative toward us. Where do we get that? Well, look again at John 6, 44. And, and rather than just look at it, let's Let's say it again, because I want you to leave here today, and you're going to have this, this verse is going to be locked in, <laughs> all right? So here we go. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, John 6, 44. So friends, here's the main point of this text, and therefore the main point of the sermon. 
Listen carefully. There is, there is some action, there is some initiative, there is some intervention by God the Father that is absolutely necessary for anyone to be saved. Let me say it again. There is some action, there is some initiative, there is some intervention by God the Father that is absolutely necessary for anyone to be saved. And that is due, and I'm going to draw your attention to three observations in this one verse. The, The first observation is this. It is due to our inability. According to Jesus... We are, on our own, unable to come to Him. Simply says, right? No one can come to me unless something happens. We are unable to turn to Christ apart from a prior action on us from God the Father. We need to to let that sink in. Um... And that's why I want you to memorize this verse. Because we are all, by nature, profoundly vulnerable to a common temptation. The temptation to minimize the desperateness of our situation. Loved ones, we can be, we may be tempted on our own uninformed by God's Word to believe things, things like this, and and I'm going to give you some examples. And and listen carefully because these, they're so close to the truth. (laughs) They're so close to the truth. And we could be tempted to believe that, first of all, you know, we're just a little sick. We're just a little weak. And since we're just a little sick, a little weak, we just need a little help. And therefore, if we just choose God, then He'll save us from our sinfulness. And so, all we need is just a little nudge. All we need is just a little, maybe a little less religious formality, a little less you know, kind of stuff that would turn people off normally. All we need is to make things just a little lighter, a little simpler, because all we need to do is just choose God. And if we do, then He will save us from our sinfulness. We could be tempted to believe that. We may be tempted to believe on our own, apart from God's word, that God's love is just this sort of a general sort of a willingness to to receive anybody that would come to Him. We could be tempted to believe that God is there. He's just quietly, passively. He's waiting. He's hoping. He's hoping for us to make the first move. God's just waiting. He's, He's there hoping that people will would accept his forgiveness, just like he's kind of waiting, hoping, looking around, maybe possibly somebody could become true worshipers. But he doesn't really have any, or or, or assert any control over whether we will or not. We're totally on our own. Uninformed by God's word, we could believe that Christ did no more in dying then make it possible for us to save ourselves by believing that Christ's death made some general option available for all people and the Holy Spirit just comes along and asks if we're interested. Would you be interested? Check this out. And ultimately, the decisive factor is whether or not we choose. On our own, uninformed by God's word, we could come to believe that we, we essentially stand in, in the state of kind of moral, spiritual neutrality. 
with the ability to choose for or against God, and that the ultimate decisive factor in our salvation is our choice and the exercise of our will. So my dearly loved friends, I say this humbly, I say it gently, but I say it firmly, and I pray, I say, I'm saying it clearly. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's, it's so crucial we understand it, that if we believe things like that, if, if your elders preach things like that, then God's word stands against us. What does Jesus say? Remember what he said? Should we say it? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's what Jesus said. The Bible presents the truth that we're dead, spiritually dead, in our trespasses and sin. And being spiritually dead in our sin, there is this pronounced spiritual inability. We are unable on our own to, we, we can't even comprehend spiritual life. Our minds on our own, our mind, we, we don't get it. We don't understand it because our minds are by nature opposed to God. Jesus said it so clearly to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, no one can see the kingdom of God. You look, they don't see anything. They don't see anything glorious. They don't see anything beautiful. He said, no one can enter the kingdom of God. No one sees it. No one gets it. No one wants it. No one can enter it unless, unless what? Unless we, we kind of lean in and get a hold of it. No one can enter the king unless, unless who, who does something first? Who makes the first move? Jesus said, unless God does something first. Unless we are given life. Unless we are made new. Unless we are born anew. Given new birth by God. The truth of God's word is that God, the Father, alone saves sinners. He's the one who must save. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the truth, you see, is, is that we're, we're not sovereign. That is, we're not sovereign in the sense of being free to determine our course. We're, we're not free to determine our destiny. Not one of us determined the century in which we would be born. No one none, none of us determined the nation or state in which we would be born. None of us determined the, the race or gender or family into which we would be born. I mean, every time I even go to my doctor, I just for a physical, I am reminded that though I can be, I can be attentive to my diet, I can be you know, disciplined in my exercise, you know, really it's, it's disappointing to me, but it's my family history of which I had absolutely nothing to do with that is de the greater determining factor in my long-term health. None of you are sovereign, are you? Um... I mean, just imagine if you were. <laughs> imagine if, I mean, I try to imagine if I had control over my destiny, given who I am, and my fickleness, and my being this way one day, and this way the next, and this way one minute, and this way the next. I am such a mixture of, um, it is just, it, it is sobering, frightening, shockingly uh, concerning if I were to consider that I had some major, ultimate, determining say in my destiny. I praise God 
that God alone is sovereign. And what John 6.44 is saying, along with many other places in Scripture, is that we do not, we cannot determine our course. Only God is sovereign, and our salvation, our being made right with God, depends ultimately and entirely on His prior gracious initiative toward us. We are saved by the Father. And no one can come to the Savior unless the Father who sent the Savior draws Him. Now, I'll make sure that you're hearing me rightly and that I'm not skipping over something that is exceedingly important. And that is, clearly, something is required of us, and that is faith. Faith is necessary, right? In spite of our inability to accomplish our own salvation, apart from the gracious initiative of God the Father, faith is still necessary. We have to do something. Your believing, my believing, this is still required. I think that's why verse 47 is, John puts it so close to verse 44. It's <laughs> three verses later. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Belief is necessary. But apart from the Father's sovereign initiative, apart from the Father's asserting His sovereign and initiating work, belief is not even possible. The Father's work, the Father's gracious intervention, the Father's drawing, that comes first. God's work precedes our faith. God's work precedes our faith and makes our faith possible. God's work precedes our believing, makes our believing possible. Loved one, it is the active work of God the Father, the active and powerful Word of God the Father that precedes our believing. And it has to. Because apart from that work, we are spiritually dead. Not just theoretically, actually, spiritually dead. Or we could shift the metaphor here and we could just say that we are by nature slaves, spiritual slaves to disobedience. Isn't that why? I think this is why. I, I, I think this is why that John chooses in, in John chapter 6 the Exodus and the Passover and all the miraculous deliverances of God's people from Egypt, all these references, these echoes back to that. As it's kind of the soundtrack underneath this entire narrative. Did the Israelites save themselves from Pharaoh? Did they rescue themselves from slavery? Who took the first step? By whose initiative were God's people set free? What part did they play in their salvation? Well, f faith to be sure. Without faith, they would not have killed any lambs. They would not have splattered the Passover blood on their doorposts. But who was the ultimate decisive factor in their deliverance? Who made it happen? God did. Now, admittedly, when it comes to our salvation, from our human perspective, so we're looking at it from our side of things, it, it can sure seem like we're the ones doing all the acting, all the seeking, all the moving toward God. And, and obviously, because it's our part, we're, we're way more aware of our part. We're, we're aware of what we do. And so it could seem to us that we're playing the initiating role, but what John 6.44 is doing, it's, it's shifting the vantage point. We're getting a different perspective here, and it's correcting the mistaken conclusion that we might be tempted to draw if we were only relying on our own limited knowledge and our own limited perspective. Friends, that's the reason that Jesus is teaching us here, so that we would know the truth of what really happens 
What's really happening? Because knowing that truth, knowing the truth of what is really happening in our salvation is really precious. That truth is so precious and so valuable and it is so powerful in changing people. Not just what they think, but who they are. It, it functions. It's transformational. You see, you, you don't want salvation. You don't want a salvation that rests ultimately on your own determination. I don't think. You don't want a salvation. I don't want a salvation in which I am the decisive factor. I know myself. I know myself. I am so thankful for this truth. In fact, the more I understand this truth, the deeper I go into this truth, the more I am gripped by the significance of this truth. Listen, the more I see and behold and taste of that truth, the more joy and the more peace and the more wonder and the more worship I then feel toward and in my heavenly Father and His glorious and sovereign grace. I love this truth. As your pastor who cares about your souls and your eternal well-being, my prayer is that you would love this truth as well. This truth is priceless. It's a precious jewel, namely, that we are saved by the Father. Here's a second observation I want to draw your attention to from John 6.44. Namely, the Father actually does, in fact, super, supernaturally draw people to Christ. He actually does this. According to Jesus, we are, by ourselves, unable to come to Him. We're unable to come to Him apart from the work that the Father does. But loved ones, God the Father does actually, in fact, draw people to Christ. Here we are. <laughs> On our own, we're spiritually dead. We are spiritually enslaved, unable to move, to be free. But all praise to the Father. We have not been left on our own. The Father has taken the initiative. The Father, in fact, does draw people to Himself. I urge you, to check this out on your own. But throughout John's Gospel, John's Gospel does not depict a God who's just merely kindly disposed to sinners should they just so happen to decide to come to Him. John communicates something exceedingly different than that. In fact, quite the opposite of that. John sets forth a God, a heavenly Father, who is actively and dynamically loving people, even sinful people, so much that He seeks them out and He draws them to Himself. God graciously and mercifully, dynamically makes people into worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth with their heads and their understanding and with their hearts and their affections. And this drawing and this making and this causing, it, it, it's not God compelling by some brute, savage, forcing people to come to Him. Forcing them to bend the knee because he has a proverbial gun to their head. It's, not, it's, it's, not a, it's neither is it some kind of a, a, a drawing of, a, of an indifferent mechanical operation. Like, you know, we're just these little puppets and robots and you, you're going to just do this and you blah, blah, blah. No, this, is, this, is, this is drawing is a wonderful, irresistible wooing of a lover. It's like falling in love. That 
that's what we experience. In love, God draws us. And we fall in love. So what John is showing us in, in chapter 6, verse, 40, verse 44, is a, a different perspective. It's a, it's a behind-the-scenes look at what goes on when we come to faith in Jesus. He's telling us what, what really happened when you got saved. He's telling me. He's giving me a little picture into what was really happening in my life, when I, back when I was about 17 years old, and, and Jesus, I noticed him. I hadn't noticed him before. I didn't just notice him, but he, came, he became attractive to me. He wasn't attractive before. I heard, his, I heard the word, and, and I, I'm, I started reading this word because it was interesting and compelling to me. It was not interesting or compelling before. I thought I was listening to the gospel. I thought I was responding to the gospel. Well, I was responding, listening and responding. But it wasn't until God had done some prior work in my heart. God was drawing me to himself. And what John is doing is he's telling us what was going on behind the scenes. You know, get behind the set, you know, and... And here's what's going on. More specifically, he's telling us what preceded our salvation and what was necessary in order for us to be saved. So friends, if you are following Jesus, if you're trusting Jesus, if you feel affection for Jesus, John is explaining what happened before all that happened. God the Father in Mercy, merciful love was drawing you to himself, calling you to himself, wooing you to himself. It's so precious. Here's a third observation. The way the Father draws people to himself is through Jesus Christ. Or to say it another way, the Father draws no one to himself apart from or outside of Jesus Christ. The way he works this sweet miracle is, is through the person and the words and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself makes it crystal clear in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there Jesus is describing, now he's describing salvation from, from our perspective, from the human side of the angle that we're looking at this. And, and, and this is how it has got to be. You, you've got to come to God through Jesus. But in John 6, Jesus is describing salvation from a divine perspective. It's from God's perspective. He, he's saying that God doesn't... He doesn't draw people to himself independently from the person, from the words, independent from the words, independent from the work of his dearly loved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember? Let's say it again. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And, and the key phrase that I want to draw your attention to here is when it says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, draws him. You see the connection? There's a connection that Jesus makes between the drawing of the Father and the sending by the Father of the Son. The, the way the Father draws 
people to himself is through the sending of the, of the Son, Jesus. It's even clearer in verses 45 and 46, I think. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God, which is a reference now to this new covenant action of God's sovereign grace, making people his own. And, and here's the key phrase. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, that's an interesting way of articulating it, isn't it? How does the Father draw us? How does he do it, according to verse 45? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So it's, it's through what we have heard and what we have learned. Through the word, the Father teaches. Well, what does that have to do with Jesus? According to verse 46, who is the one, the only one, who has seen the Father? Who is the one? who is the only one who has seen the Father and can rightly explain and teach and communicate who He is. It's the one who's standing right there in front of you, says Jesus. I have seen the Father. The Father has sent me. It's through me, says Jesus. And through my words that the Father is revealing and He's teaching and He's drawing. So how, how does the Father draw men and women, boys and girls to Himself? He draws them through His powerful Word. And that Word, that revelation of Himself is in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. It's through Jesus that God is at work drawing us to Jesus. Jesus has the words of eternal life. He is the bread of life. Acting in and through the word of Christ, the person and work of Christ, and the good news of Jesus Christ, God is by that means actively drawing people to Himself. And no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him through Jesus. We're saved by the Father through Jesus Christ. That's my first aim. And I got one more. And um, we could say so much here, but I'm going to keep it brief. How do we respond? <laughs> What's the significance of that for us? Maybe I should say not how do we, but how how will we respond? When the Spirit of Jesus opens our eyes to this truth, what is it that happens? What does right belief in this truth that God is the ultimate and decisive factor in our eternal life, what, what happens to us? Well, a lot of things. But the first thing is that it engenders humility before God and one another. That might be a better way to say it. it it's humility before God and one another. Sadly, those, those who most readily and, and aggressively take hold of this truth are sadly um, become very hard, <laughs> become hard. But believing this rightly, I think getting this right in our minds and in our hearts, what, where it should gain functional traction is that it, it should produce and engender profound humility. The functional effect of the truth that it is ultimately and entirely by grace that we have been saved. Yes, it's through faith. Even that faith is enabled by God's sovereign grace. It's not of ourselves. It's not of our work. 
It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. And I see this connection most clearly, perhaps in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, 31, where Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. In other words, he's, he's, he's encouraging us to think about this doctrine, this, this doctrine that, that the ultimate decisive factor in our salvation is, is God first. Consider your calling, brothers. God chose what is weak. God chose what is powerless. God chose what is completely unable on their own. God chose what is weak, powerless in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, are, things that are and here's the functional effect, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of Him. A profound humility is generated and rises when we are gripped by the reality that the ultimate determining factor in our salvation is God. The Father saves. Getting that truth right removes all boasting, all high thoughts of ourselves, any kind of an attitude that, hey, like, we've got it together and nobody else does. Um, we're right. Everybody else is wrong. I mean, it just, it just cuts that off at the ankles. It, it, it removes all boasting of our inherent goodness and wisdom and cleverness. Oh, man, we're so smart. And, and it engenders a tenderheartedness toward others, humility toward God, toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. It, it creates a different kind of spiritual community. But that's not all it produces. Believing this truth cannot help but produce gratitude to God. In his uh, excellent teaching that we draw people's attention to um, on the functional centrality of the gospel, Mike Bullmore says so well, he says, contrary to congratulating ourselves on what we have done, the true believer thanks God for what He has done. Contrary to congratulating ourselves on what we have done, the true believer thanks God for what He has done. Stripped of all our self-congratulations, we now gladly bow down before God and His Son and we simply say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. When this doctrine grips us and we taste it and we sense it and it's applied to us powerfully and deeply through the work of the Holy Spirit, grumbling and complaining, it just gets diminished and gratitude grows. There's a third fruit that is produced by the conviction that our salvation, that our right relationship with God depends ultimately, entirely on God the Father's gracious initiative toward us. And that is a profound sense of security in our salvation. That He will hold us fast. And that's a jewel that we're going to give our attention to more carefully next week. God willing. So let's pray.
certainly one right response, O Lord, is, is just to be silent before you. To be still before you and know that you alone are God. Jesus, when you say no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, that inability, that's a, that's a very humbling matter. Would you engender an appropriate humility that is born from that truth. But the other is profound gratitude. And so on the one hand, I mean, who are we to say a thing before you? But on the other hand, how can we keep silent? How can we keep silent? But to how fitting it is to praise you, to boast in you, to make much of you, to rejoice in you, to exult in you, to thank you and thank you and thank you, O oh Lord, over and over for making us your children, where you have asserted yourself, where you have begotten spiritual life so that we would turn and we would come and we would believe and we would pursue our heart the satisfaction of our heart hunger, the quenching of our soul thirst in you. What a miracle that is. What a gift that is. We just want to say, be exalted and we thank you. And just take our lives, Lord, all of us. Be our all-consuming passion. So we trust you, Lord, to accomplish um, what the truth of your word what you intend to build and create of a people. Make that so of us. In Jesus' name we pray.